For capitalism to work, you have to have effectively functioning, solid capital markets. And in order to do that, you need savings, not money printed by a central bank, but real savings from businesses and households. In this episode, I sit down with David Stockman, who served as budget director for President Ronald Reagan. Back then, the public debt was 30-40% of GDP. Not good, but tolerable in terms of historic trend. Today, it's 120%. We basically tried to borrow our way to prosperity. Stockman is the author of The Great Money Bubble, Protect Yourself from the Coming Inflation Storm. How did we end up in the current fiscal crisis? What happens when we raise the debt ceiling? And what are we not being told? In this deal, there are no enforcement mechanisms at all beyond the current year. The mainstream media didn't want any alternative except for the Republicans to blink and the debt to be raised yet again, and that's exactly what happened. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleg. David Stockman, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to be with you. I'm going to start with something I picked up from your book, The Great Money Bubble. You write, we should put an end to the insane central bank campaign against a non-existent deflationary threat. (laughs) So a lot in there. Yes. But I, I think it's relevant because for 10 years we heard from the Fed that we didn't have enough inflation, that they were missing their 2% target from below, from the low side, and that they therefore had to keep printing the money, keep interest rates practically at zero in order to get inflation up to target. That was absurd. (laughs) It led to a drastic overshoot. It flooded, you know, the financial system with liquidity, which eventually worked its way through the world economy and delivered once we had a big bump, uh, which was the COVID and the uh, supply chain breakdowns and then the war in Ukraine. All those things, uh, you know, dislocated the world economy. All that liquidity was out there. And suddenly we had 4%, 6 8% inflation, and they didn't know where it was coming from. And they had caused it, along with other central banks that followed the Fed's lead. And then when inflation was clearly way, way above target a year and a half ago, they said, well, it's only transitory. It'll be gone soon. And it wasn't. And so finally, uh, in March a year ago, uh, 2022, they had to, uh, you know, abruptly reverse course, begin to raise interest rates uh, so-called dramatically in, because they were so far behind the curve. But here's the thing. There's a lot of whining on Wall Street and elsewhere about how fast the Fed has raised interest rates. But the problem is they started at zero. They never should have been at zero. Interest rates, the one they set, the overnight rate, the so-called federal funds rate, uh, is uh, still uh, kind of low by historical standards. Uh, The perception that they have drastically and sharply raised interest rates is only because they started, you know, from the rock bottom, from what I call, you know, the sub-basement of history in terms of uh, relative uh, positions. So you have to understand that the big problem in the world today is the Fed, is central banks, all of them have sort of gotten in some big money printer's convoy 
They've so flooded the world market with fiat credit that it's distorted everything. And that's why we have inflation. That's why we have these huge financial bubbles uh, in, on Wall Street. That's why, you know, real estate values uh, got so far, um, you know, overvalued and, and became so excessive. That's why people are suffering today who have a paycheck that's not keeping up with inflation and, and living standards when the paycheck uh, is not rising as fast as inflation, obviously, then living standards, purchasing power is shrinking or falling. And that's where the great, uh, you know, majority of Main Street is today. So, you know, the whole thing was uh, really a fiasco and it's not going to change if the Fed merely retunes, you know, its policy or slightly adjusts uh, its uh, approach to things. We need a house cleaning uh, from top to bottom uh, at the Federal Reserve and in other central banks. And we also need to recognize that it was all of this easy money, these ultra low interest rates that enabled Congress to spend like there was no tomorrow, to build up the national debt to uh, public debt to this three, 32 trillion level that we're at today. And that set the table, so to speak, for the big uh, debt ceiling crisis mm -hmm that we're having at the moment. And frankly, that I would predict is going to happen over and over and over as far as the eye can see, because the Congress is allowed fiscal matters uh, to drift, you know, totally out of control. So you've just given us a massive <laughs> macro yeah, view of yeah. the last, what, 40, 50 uh, 40, years? Yeah, so, well, so, since the uh, 70s, really, <laughs> yes. And you've been watching this closely because you were the budget director at one point under Reagan in the early 80s, if I, if I recall correctly. Well, that's correct, and I would yeah. just put a number in. Every, I think people now recognize because of the debt ceiling battle that's going on that the public debt is 32 trillion, which is a pretty big number. But I'm still here, you know, I'm not uh, 900 years old, okay? And when I went to Washington in 1970 uh, to begin, you know, as a young guy working on Capitol Hill, the public debt was 200 billion. And when I became budget director in 1980, or late 80, 1981 for Ronald Reagan, we were trying to hold the debt, the public debt, under $1 trillion. Now that wasn't that long ago, that's 40 years ago, and now we're at 32 trillion, a 32-fold increase in a few decades. When the economy has maybe increased by three or four times, and uh, the budget uh, uh, or the public debt by 32 times. So back then, you know, the public debt was 30, 40 percent of GDP. Not good, but, you know, tolerable in terms of historic uh, trend. Today, it's 120 percent and growing rapidly. Total change. We basically tried to borrow our way to prosperity, and what we've ended up uh, doing is creating, you know, an almost impossible uh, fiscal um, uh, uh, equation. Uh, because, you know, as we look forward, what's happening? The baby boom generation, all 80 million strong, are all going into retirement. I was the first year of the baby boom, 1946. And uh, for, you know, there's 12, 15 years worth of baby boom. After that, they're all going to be retired on Social Security, on Medicare. 
uh, and other uh, retirement programs. So uh, we are drifting into a condition where the pressure on spending due to pure demographics, and it's baked into the cake, you know, uh, everybody that's uh, relevant, workers or retirees have already been born, they're there, they can be counted, uh, is going to get a lot worse because the number of workers relative to the number of retirees uh, will keep shrinking. So we have big problems. So I want to kind of go back to first principles a little here because, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed, I learned a ton actually from reading your book as you chart kind of the progress of the development of the Fed and the, I think you call it the infernal money machine, Washington yeah. infernal money machine. Yeah, infernal money um, machine. That just from a very, you know, very much a layman's perspective, right? It just, what strikes me or what struck me for a while is that just a lot of money is being made through manipulating money as opposed to through actually creating value, which one would hope would be the main way. And the costs of that are huge, obviously, because there's just huge industries that are just dedicated to manipulating money instead of right. actually creating something of value to people. Sure, because if you look back in history, 100, 120 years ago, the great prosperity in America was created by new industry. The steel industry uh, grew and boomed. The automobile industry was born in the 1890s and by 1930 was a major U.S. industry. Modern chemical industry and plastics and all the products that uh, came from that uh, uh, grew in that time. And then came along radio and TV. These were all useful things that produced something of value uh, based on tangible goods that ended up in the economy. And yeah, so uh, John D. Rockefeller became uh, very rich, a billionaire in today's dollars uh, in his day. Or, you know, Frick uh, or Carnegie and Steele or, you know, many, many others. Uh, Edison, actually Thomas Edison <laughs> became quite wealthy from his inventions and properly so. Today, uh, a lot of uh, the wealth that's been created was created on Wall Street, not out in the real economy. And it was created as a result of the Fed saturating the financial system, the stock market, the bond market, uh, real estate markets with uh, cheap money, which was then used to borrow, uh, was used to uh, in, in, uh, invest in leveraged uh, speculation, uh, okay? And as long as the money bubble kept expanding, then stock prices could go higher and higher and higher, and people could get richer and richer and richer, but they weren't creating necessarily anything new. They were simply revaluing what was already there. And even the new, uh, companies that were really innovating and generating things. Amazon, I mean, it's a great company. Uh, Google, it's a great company. But their valuations became so extreme, or I guess Tesla would be the best example of all. Uh, maybe there's a role for uh, electric vehicles uh, in the future, uh, may, uh, you know, major share of the market, or maybe not. But uh, Tesla became massively overvalued due to all of this speculation in the stock market. And I think that's the dilemma we have today because finally the Fed has realized it has to stop printing money. And uh, I know that sounds kind of simplistic, 
But the fact is, a year ago, March, they shut the printing press down because inflation was, you know, uh, accelerating and getting out of control. And for a year and uh, two or three months now, they've printed no new money and, and interest rates have consequently risen. Bubbles have begun to break everywhere. The stock market is not yet totally collapsed, but it will. And so we're now finally having to reverse course uh, after this enormous money bubble, as I called it in my book, and as I write about every day in my uh, newsletter, uh, which is called the Contra Corner. It's a contrarian view of what's going on in the world. Uh, all of this now is being reversed. So uh, if, you know, if people think that tomorrow is going to be like yesterday, then they need to rethink where we are because tomorrow is not going to be like yesterday. We've had a party for several decades. We've had huge bubbles. We've had unsustainable money printing by the Fed. We've had a public debt, which we were talking about, that has grown from $1 trillion to $32 trillion in a short period of time. Uh, none of this was really sustainable. It didn't represent uh, what, what I would call sound economics or sound money or sound uh, public finance. It was all uh, kind of a fantasy. And uh, now <laughs> you we're going to have to deal with the consequences. And that's what I was trying to say in my book. Uh, you know, the direction uh, of history is now changing and there's going to be some very difficult, uh, un unavoidable adjustments uh, coming ahead. This relationship between interest rates yeah. and, uh, and inflation, uh, inflation yeah. exactly. Um, that is not necessarily obvious to everybody. Yeah. I mean, briefly, why, why is that so tightly connected always? Well, I, you know, I think there, over time, for capitalism to work, and that's the only road to prosperity, you know, everything else that we've tried, uh, government statism, uh, democratic socialism or communism, none of those work, right? We can see that uh, in the pages of history. But for capitalism to work, you have to have uh, effectively functioning, solid uh, capital markets. Uh, and in order to do that, you need savings, real savings, not money printed by a central bank, but real savings from businesses and households that can then go into investment for you know new capacity new productivity uh, new goods and services and that will not happen if the interest rate on savings is lower than the inflation rate because what that means is that if you save you're stupid you're losing money because every year everything you've saved uh, is uh, you know, uh, worth less than the interest you earned on it. So that's where we've been now uh, for the last 20 or 30 years with a negative interest rate after inflation. We call it the real interest rate or real, uh, you know, inflation adjusted interest rate. And that created all these great bubbles. It created this uh, sort of faux prosperity, uh, temporary prosperity, but it was wrecking the system. So now what's happening is the Fed is finally reluctantly and a day late and a dollar short uh, trying to get interest rates back up 
above the inflation rate, and, and they got a long way to go. I mean, right now, the federal funds rate, the, the rate they control, that's kind of short-term money that you can earn in a money market, is at 4%. The inflation rate is 6 or 7%. Savers are still behind the curve. And until you get the inflation rate down dramatically, or interest rates up even higher than they are today, uh, that isn't going to change. And that's, that's the kind of um, pivot that we're in uh, today. Uh, trying to get uh, interest rates back above uh, the inflation rate and get um, what you would call honest price discovery back into the marketplace. Because that's the only way you're going to get a real uh, healthy capital markets, financial markets, and without those you're not going to have the investment you need for an economy to grow on a sustainable uh, basis. You know, what strikes me about everything you're saying, too, is that uh, the, it's really kind of what you would call Main Street, like the you know, working class, the middle class, that, that face the, the costs of this kind of scenario the most because their savings are effectively depreciating. The, the value they have is depreciating, whereas people that are, I guess, speculating in these larger areas are, are benefiting. Yeah. For, I mean, for a while, I would say the policy of the Fed, of course, they would never say it this way, but I would put it in delicately that their policy was to savage the saver because they, you know, they decreed that short-term money, which is what the, you know, a bank interest rate or a short-term uh, CD, a certificate of deposit rate is based on, shall be 0.5%. In other words, one-twentieth of one percent. Yeah. That's all savers were allowed to make, or maybe uh, a third of a percent or a half a percent. And even then, inflation was running 2%, and if it was measured accurately, it would have been even higher. So for years and years and years, the Fed said, keep saving, sucker, because we're going to shrink the value of whatever you're putting in the bank. Well, people weren't that stupid, and so they stopped saving. And so our savings rate nationally kept going lower and lower, even as the governments were borrowing more and more because deficits got bigger and no one even bothered to balance the budget anymore. So there's a pool out there. All the savings from private into households or businesses come into the pool, and then out of that comes the investment in the private sector, plus all the money governments have to borrow, which has been several trillion a year to make ends meet in their current operations. So essentially, the real evil of the deficit is that it, uh, it absorbs, it uh, sops up all the savings that should be going into new factories or new shopping <laughs> opportunities or new uh, transportation uh, uh, systems uh, end up getting channeled into uh, government budgets to fund the short, uh, shortfall from current taxation. And that's really what's been going on. We have been redirecting savings uh, which have been shrinking uh, away from high value, high productivity private investments into low value, in fact, often wasteful uh, government uh, spending and budgets. And you can only do that for so long, and it catches up with you. And I think that's kind of where we are today.
Well, this seems like a good place to jump into our discussion about the debt ceiling here. Sure. Apparently a deal has been reached. It's going to be voted on sometime in the near future. And you have a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I've, I've gotten your newsletter. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll just going to quote something you wrote here, which I thought was you know, fascinating and disturbing. And you said, you, we were perhaps within perhaps five days of breaking the iron grip of America's fiscal doomsday machine, which is the machine that we've just been describing. Right. Right here. And so, so what? <laughs> it, what, what do you mean here? <laughs> Let's look at the federal budget on a 10-year basis, because one year at a time, they can only do so much. But on a 10-year basis, you have a pretty good take on where we're going. If you take all of the current laws that are in place in policies for defense and non-defense and Social Security and Medicare and uh, you know the safety net and all the other programs, spending will be 80 trillion over the next decade. But unfortunately, if we look at the tax laws that are in place, the payroll tax, the income tax, the corporate tax, and so forth, only 60 trillion worth of revenue will be coming in. So you have a gap of 20 trillion, which will be more deficit, more borrowing, and an even bigger public debt if nothing is done to change the trajectory, which is what they're talking about, spending versus revenue. Now, we were talking about how 32 trillion of public debt is a pretty terrible thing. But actually, if you look at the 10-year outlook and this uh, built-in projection that I just described, you're really heading towards 50 or 55 trillion of public debt by the early 2030s. In other words, if they don't do something, that's where we're going to be in a short period of time. That's why we need to have big sweeping changes in policy. From my point of view, much less spending, but if necessary, more taxes or a combination of the two, but you can't keep borrowing two or three trillion a year, building up the public debt and leaving that massive burden to future generations. You can't do it. So that, that's the background. That's the context of the uh, battle that's going on today. Now, I consider the deal that they made a joke. They didn't address either the 60 of revenue, 60 trillion, or the 80 trillion of spending. And so let's look at the spending side, where naturally that would be our first point of <laughs> reform, first point of change. Of that 80 trillion, nearly 50 trillion of that is in entitlements and mainly Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, uh, student uh, uh, loans, uh, and a few other uh, big ones. What, how much of, the, of that did they decide to save uh, in this package that was agreed to? Because after all, if the total spending is 80 trillion and 50 trillion of it is made up by these entitlements, and it's important to understand that they're not uh, approved every year by Congress. In other words, entitlements have that name because it's automatic. Uh, you, you know, if you don't change the law, 
then you know there's there's 75 million people are going to get social security if you don't change the law uh, even more than that are going to get uh, medicaid and medicare 100 million and so forth so how much is in this compromise that would maybe reduce that just a little bit and help close the gap answer zero zero in fact it's actually go goes the other way the house Republican package at least put a work requirement improvement on Medicaid and food stamps and family assistance. That would have saved $130 billion, according to the Congressional Budget Office, over the next decade. They went into negotiations a few weeks ago and, you know, they kept reporting day after day, there's push and pull and negotiate. They came out of the room with a deal that did not cut 130 billion or 70 billion or 10 billion. It actually increased spending for those programs by 2 billion. In other words, <laughs> it went in the wrong direction. It saved nothing. Now, if you then ask, well, what's on top of the 50 trillion that they didn't cut at all? The next 10 trillion is interest. Well, you're going to have to pay the interest or the whole, you know, bond market of the world will fall apart. So it's not even, you know, it's nothing you can cut. Uh, you've got to pay and you've built up the debt. So and then we're up to 60. We're up to right. 60. Now, what's the next uh, layer on that? Well, there's 10 trillion of defense over the next decade. How much of that did they cut? Zero. In fact, the Republicans, who are supposed to be the fiscally conservative party, uh, you know, are constantly beating the drums for even more defense spending. Now, we, we're, we're totally out of control on defense spending. It's $900 billion a year now, as much as the next 12 countries in the world combined. That was uh, set aside. That was off the table. There's nothing in this package that will save a red cent from the $10 trillion defense. So now we're up to 70, right? So what's left? Well, there's 10 trillion left uh, for the national parks uh, and for grants to state and local governments and for highway construction and uh, veterans and a few other things. Well, they said, we can't cut veterans to healthcare. So they set that aside, they exempted healthcare. You, you see where I'm going. Where I'm going is they back themselves into a tiny corner of the budget by exempting everything that would make a difference, no revenues, no entitlements, no interest cuts, no uh, defense savings, and even in um, you know, the so-called non-defense discretionary programs, like the ones I mentioned, uh, they came up with uh, basically a freeze on a level that is higher than it's ever been before. In other words, if we go back to when big spender Obama left the White House in 2017, January 2017, non-defense uh, do domestic spending, the little corner that's left uh, after all these others are set aside, was about 600 billion a year. Then in comes uh, the Republicans and President Trump and the majority, both for a while in both the House and the Senate. And uh, where did we end up? Well, they kept raising the spending, not cutting it, even though they spent years criticizing Obama for being a big spender. Then came the COVID and they went nuts, you know, with trillions and trillions 
of uh, free stuff and STEMI checks and unemployment insurance toppers and all kinds of money that was pumped into every sector of the economy. My point was that today in 2023, non-defense discretionary spending was 900 billion, 50% more than where Obama left it, which was bad enough. And then the Republicans have the gall to come out and tell everybody we've frozen domestic spending for one year, okay, uh, uh, at that very high level. Well, that's, that, that doesn't make a dent. It doesn't make a scratch in closing this massive 20 trillion gap between spending and revenue that we're facing as we go down the road. So now why do I think this was a failure, not just because it didn't cut anything and exempted practically everything, but also because the only tool of budget control left, because Washington is so, you know, uh, off the deep end on this, I guess is the term I would use, is the debt ceiling. Back in the day when I was there, I was a member of Congress from Michigan for a period of time, and then in the Reagan administration, we took very seriously the law that said Congress and the White House shall pass and agree, agree upon and pass an annual budget resolution that lays out all the policies that will, help, that will generate revenue on the one side and spending on the other side, and hopefully the two come uh, close to balance. That was to be done every year in something called the budget re uh, resolution, and then something called reconciliation that was a set of policies designed to make you know, more revenue or less uh, spending in order to uh, have a solid budget plan. We did that year after year. No one even imagined that you would just skip having a budget. I mean, a business has to have a budget. Most families have some kind of budget. And Congress now and the White House in collusion basically said, forget it. They haven't passed a real budget resolution in years and years and years. So that tool of financial management, fiscal management, has just been kicked over, uh, kicked in the ditch. Now the second thing is that if you look at the overall budget, 25% of it is appropriated each year for defense and these domestic uh, programs I've mentioned. 75% is for interest and entitlements. Now in the 25%, it used to be you would have 12 appropriations bills every year. You know, one for agriculture, one for uh, health and human services, one for the Interior Department, the National Parks, and so on. I think people vaguely heard about that. When I went to work on Capitol Hill in the 1970s, uh, and then when I was in the uh, White House in the 80s, the annual appropriation cycle was a big deal. You had to get those 12 bills hammered out. You had to have uh, them brought to both the House and the Senate through committee, approved, reconciled in a conference, sent to the president to sign if he vetoed it. It had to then be, you know, re-enacted uh, uh, on Capitol Hill. All of that was part of the routine of you know, financial management, fiscal management of government. Guess what? They don't pass appropriations bills anymore. They wait to the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th. There are no appropriations bills for the coming year 
So they passed something called a continuing resolution, a CR, that says for the next 30 days only spend at the rate you had approved last year. And then 30 days are up and they still haven't passed the bills and they extend it for another 30 days. And then finally, nobody can agree on the bills, they can't get them out of committee, so they pass some giant thing called an omnibus appropriation that is typically 3,000, 4,000 pages long, put together in the middle of the night, sprung on the House and the Senate the next day. They pass it sight unseen. No one could possibly read it or comprehend it. And that becomes the appropriations bill substitute for another year. So why am I going through this? Because if you don't have an annual budget plan or a resolution, if you don't do anything about entitlements, which is what reconciliation used to do, if you don't pass any appropriations bills, you don't have any tools of financial management left except once in a while when the debt ceiling is reached to use that as kind of a leverage point to force action uh, to do something about the spending and the borrowing and a fiscal you know, process that's out of control. That's what, and that's the only thing left. In other words, the debt ceiling is a last resort fiscal tool that is the only thing that's going to stop what I call this doomsday budget machine from eventually taking us under uh, financially. And that was the battle that was going on all last month. That was the battle that was being addressed in this so-called uh, deal that uh, the speaker and president have agreed to. And what did they do in that deal? They threw away the leverage that the House Republicans had by saying, we're not going to agree to another debt ceiling increase unless we get some real fiscal retrenchment and spending cuts and reforms and they said this and they said it over and over. They went into negotiations, they came out, and the debt ceiling now will be effectively raised by another four trillion, so we'll go to 36 trillion from the 32 that we're at, and no spending cuts that make any difference that amount to a hill of beans in return. So they gave up the tool, the debt ceiling leverage, and what did they get for it? Essentially nothing. There are being uh, uh, savings that are being touted, right? And you're just saying that they're not significant. They're, they're, there's some well, kind of loophole uh, that, that can be used against them. And the other thing I wanted to mention, you describe the debt default, because you keep hearing about the debt default, everything's gonna, yeah. it's gonna be the end of the world. I mean, that's, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's very serious. But you call that a canard, you call it a boogeyman, actually. Yeah. Well, the savings, they say, you know, is going to be a big number, like they're probably throwing around a trillion. But that is based on targets for the last eight years of the 10-year window that we're in that are not binding, that have no enforcement mechanism, and that history proves, uh, and I've written about this in my uh, blog, in my newsletter, uh, never materialize. They, they just, in 2011, we had a great debt ceiling crisis and showdown between the Republican Congress and uh, uh, President Obama. 
and they came up with a deal, and it actually had 10 years worth of spending caps or reductions and a quite a forceful mechanism to enforce it if they overshot the targets. But even with that mechanism, 10 years of enforcement, uh, they ended up spending 25% more than was actually targeted. Now, in this deal, there are no enforcement mechanisms at all beyond the current year. It's all just sort of pie in the sky, wouldn't it be nice uh, to uh, cap these programs uh, going forward uh, over the next uh, of the eight years. And that, again, is only on the non-defense discretionary part of the budget, which is 15% of the total. They're not talking about any savings in any of the entitlements. They're not talking about any savings in defense. They saved money on a work requirement for food stamps. Now, I, I think it's important to understand the, the con job, really, the tricks that these Washington types play because they've been involved in this gamesmanship so long, even as you know the fiscal affairs of the country go to hell in a handbasket, They've been so caught up in these games that they have lost sight of uh, the negligence that's really going on. But they're saying, well, for food stamps, the current requirement is that if you're um, uh, 49 or under, you're able-bodied and you don't have dependents, kids, then you have to meet a work requirement of 20 hours a week. Now that's pretty, you know, nobody should be uh, complained about that. If you're able-bodied, no kids, and 49, uh, yeah, you, you better be working. So the Republicans got them to raise that requirement age to 55, okay, uh, from 49. And there's a lot of liberals, you know, screaming and beating the tom-toms about how unfair that is. Well, that's ridiculous. A 55-year-old with no dependents and able-bodied should be working if they're going to get food stamps, okay, period. Anyway, that would save a few billion dollars, and that's the savings they're talking about. But what they forgot to tell you was that as part of the compromise, they removed the work requirement entirely for one, all veterans, no matter what their age they are. So if they're 20 years old or 25, they're out of the military, they can get food stamps and they don't have to work. Uh, for any homeless people, so you know, uh, if you're uh, homeless, you get food stamps, uh, whether you're able-bodied or not. And for anybody uh, that comes out of foster care and they could be you know, 19 years old, the extra cost is more than what they saved by raising the work requirement from 49 to 54 years old for everybody else. Well, this is just a shell game. <laughs> you know, they didn't save anything net. They actually spent a lot more money uh, to save a little bit, but on net, in terms of the big picture that we're talking about here, it's a total scam. As uh, the speaker McCarthy keeps saying, we're gonna bend the trajectory. I know it's heading in a bad direction, but we're going to bend the tra tra trajectory. But if you're going to exempt defense and all of entitlements, and you have to pay the interest, and that's over 85% of the entire projected spending stream of $80 trillion over the next 10 years, 
how are you going to bend? How are you going to bend the curve? And then if you get even to the part that you haven't exempted, but simply freezing it at a very high level for one year with no binding targets for the out years, you know, is is nonsense. It accomplishes, you know, a rounding error at best. Politicians are deeply afraid of doing any sort of cutting because then people will go and say, hey, look, you're cutting. You know, every, look how needy everybody is, especially at this time. Look, we're having these, you know, struggles in the economy and so forth. So what you're going to you're going to make it life more difficult for people? That doesn't sound like a winning proposition, right? I think this is what... what well, you know, uh, this, go, this is the same thing that I had to deal with back in the early 80s when we were trying to, with, in the Reagan administration, we, when we were trying to slow the uh, runaway growth of big government under Johnson and uh, Jimmy Carter and so forth, and it was all, you're going to throw... Uh, you know, the old ladies and the children out in the snow. And we never, we never proposed any of that. It was all based on very logical things, such as raising the work requirement age from 49 to 55 if you don't have children and you're able-bodied. I mean, who can argue against that? Now, my point is there's tons of reforms that can be made to retarget a lot of these programs to what we call the truly needy and require that the rest of the population pitch in, pull their fair share of the weight, and not become lifetime dependents on the taxpayer because the taxpayers are being crushed with, one, the inflation that comes from all this borrowing, Two, the taxes that they're already paying. And three, the prospects that it's only going to get worse as we go forward because of all these big entitlement programs, uh, you know, uh, are becoming insolvent. The point uh, I guess I, I should have made more uh, clear is there is no such thing as a debt default that if the Treasury is running low on cash, the President and the Secretary of the Treasury have the power to decide some bills will be paid and others will be deferred. I spent a lot of time as an investor and in business, and we had a couple of businesses that got in big trouble with cash flow. And what does a business do when they really get squeezed hard but they can see a way, uh, you know, out down the road. Well, they keep, they leave some bills in the drawer. <laughs> you know, they pay their bills late. They defer the payments so they can keep their cash balanced and then uh, implement policies that hopefully will reduce their costs and get them back on a, a sustainable footing financially. The federal government can do the same thing. Now, let's just look at some numbers, which I think will show how silly this whole debt default thing is. Right now, and this has been the case like for the last six or seven months, the Treasury is taking in $450 billion a month of revenue. Even at the current kind of sloppy economy we have that's bouncing along, $450 billion. What is the monthly average interest payment on this big public debt? $61 billion. So it's 13% of the revenue coming in. If you make that the number one central priority, you will always pay the debt. 
Now, the second thing you could say is, well, there's a lot of retired people on Social Security. You really can't leave them out in the cold. Okay, how much are we spending a month typically in Social Security? $128 billion. Okay, there's $450 billion coming in. There's plenty of room to cover Social Security. Then they'll say, well, you know, but we've got uh, men uh, in the military uh, that are, you know, defending the country. They expect a paycheck. Uh, we've got planes that need to fly, ships that need to sail, etc. Well, how much do we spend a month on military pay and operations and maintenance? $50 billion. All right, so we could take the 128 billion, the 50 billion, <laughs> and the 61 billion, and we still got room, okay? Well, then what about the veterans, okay? Because we've, uh, you know, they, a lot of them got uh, injured for life, maimed and injured, and uh, have disabilities, so they need to get their pensions. They need to get, okay, uh, how much is that? 25 billion a month. All right, so when we pay a lot of these priorities, starting with interest, we still have, you know, 180 billion left on an average monthly basis to pay everything else. So if we have to basically pay some highway contractors a little bit late because Congress hasn't raised the debt ceiling because they're fighting over spending cuts, so what? They can get by for five days or 10 days or 20 days. And the same thing is true with all the other uh, spendings. Grants to colleges uh, can be deferred for a short period of time. So the idea that if on any given day there is a dime less revenue coming in than what we need to spend for uh, due bills, uh, scheduled uh, payments owed, that we have to pay none of them if we're one penny short is ridiculous. What you do is prioritize. You, you pay the important bills and then you have a big fight in Washington to find uh, ways to reduce spending or in the worst case increase revenue so you don't have to keep borrowing all the money and raising the public debt time and time again. And this is the big opportunity that was totally blown. They blew it. They had a chance to prove, and this is the five days, that by uh, within five days, if there weren't a debt ceiling increase, the Treasury would have been down to zero cash. And going forward, they very easily could have taken the huge amount of revenue coming in every day and allocated it to these high priorities that I've just mentioned, and they could have gone for day after day after day, and there would have been no default on the public debt, there would have been no default on the interest payments, the credit of the United States would not have been, uh, you know, impaired in some lasting way. All of this is what should happen. And I tell you, the fiscal equation would change dramatically, would be turned upside down if we ever finally killed the bogeyman of debt default, forced the Treasury to prioritize and allocate current revenue rather than raise the debt ceiling until, you know, some serious fiscal reform and uh, restraint is put into place. And that could happen it should have happened. We were within days of doing that. This is a horrible, horrible deal. It's an open-ended increase in the public debt. It wasn't even like earlier times. We've had these battles 
you know, many times in the last two decades. But instead of raising it by a set amount, say a trillion, it's open-ended. It's suspended. They suspended the debt ceiling uh, limit for, until January 2025, which means that if somehow things really got out of hand and they borrowed another $8 trillion between now and January 2025, fine. It goes right on the public debt, and there's no debt ceiling limit to stop it. It was a terrible, terrible thing to give an open-ended increase in the debt uh, through the uh, next election and into the next Congress. And that's exactly what uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy agreed to. In this sort of situation that you're describing, is there a way, is there, what, what, is, what is the best way forward in your mind? Is there something that can yet be done now? Uh, well, yeah, that, that's a huge uh, question. Obviously, uh, you know, fiscal policy could be totally reoriented. We don't need to spend $900 billion on defense. We could cut that to four or $500 billion and take a big chunk out of the $2 trillion a year of uh, borrowing that we're doing now. We could have a better means test for Social Security. If you're wealthy, you don't need to get your Social Security. We could have a means test and, uh, and refocus Social Security only on people that don't have a pension or don't have other sources of income in their retirement or, you know, gra graduated. Uh, so that's basically the case. We could have sweeping changes in how much we spend uh, for on providers for Medicare and Medicaid. Those two together cost $1.2 trillion. There's sweeping changes needed there. These are the things in substance that need to be done. Uh, but it won't happen as long as there are no tools to address budget policy. These substantive issues require a policy change, and the policy change is to recognize that debt ceiling is the only tool we have left as leverage to force you know, uh, changes in revenue and spending policy. But we're never going to get that as long as we allow the establishment media, and by that I mean CNN and MSNBC and ABC and CBS and NBC and the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the establishment media that have been repeating over and over and over and over about this debt default bogeyman as this crisis has emerged, and they never have the nerve, to, they never have the honesty, it's not nerve, it's honesty to tell you that back during the 211 crisis, when Obama was in the White House and the Republicans were trying to force, uh, you know, spending cuts that the uh, Obama people didn't agree to, that the dean of liberal constitutional scholars, like the head and shoulders of everybody at Harvard Law School, Lawrence Tribe. I mean, a lot of people will recognize that name. He, you know, he's the ultimate liberal jurist, said in exact explicit words, if they don't get the debt ceiling increase, Obama should prioritize spending should allocate the revenues coming in to debt service and other priorities. Now, they forgot that he said that 11 years ago, 
that you know didn't come from some right-wing uh, source. It wasn't some ultra-conservative law professor from the boondocks in Nebraska. It was from Harvard Law School, Lawrence, Lawrence Tribe. But did you hear a word about that during this whole debate? Did you know it, it, the media blanked it out? They shut it out. Uh, the mainstream media didn't want any alternative except for the Republicans to blink and uh, the debt to be raised yet again. And that's exactly what happened. The debt ceiling is going to be raised by $4 trillion or more because it's open-ended. And uh, the Republicans blinked yet again because nothing substantive and lasting was done about... Uh, you know, the fiscal equation. What, what do you think the end game is for the people that seek these ever greater increases that are kind of pushing for those? Because I, 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 I'm certain that, that this isn't the agenda of everybody, right? No, but it's the agenda of the, what I call the political class, the permanent uh, apparatchiks, if you want to use that term, that inhabit Washington. And you know, uh, you look at the Congress today, it is dominated by people who have been there 10, 20, 30 years careerists. The staff are all careerists, or at least they're building their resume so they can go get a good job somewhere out in corporate America and make more money. Uh, the uh, city is just, uh, you know, saturated with think tanks and so-called non-governmental organizations that milk the money tree from both government agencies and private foundations, and they spend all their money doing research and propaganda for more government. <laughs> they just uh, keep spending money to support operations and organizations that write justifications for what they're doing and why they need more. And so uh, I think it's going to take a kind of almost a... Uh, grassroots political revolution, I call it. We have got to uh, basically get government back in the control of the people and, uh, you know, uh, elected representatives who are not making a career out of it. And that's why one of my pet peeves and my pet uh, ideas uh, for how do you change the direction, the big direction, we've got to have term limits. Don't let the careerists take control of government because after they've been on the Potomac uh, long enough, they think every, you know, the be all and end all of life is government programs and they're totally wrong. So if we had a career limit, I would say, you know, six years in the House, one term in the Senate, six years for a president, no reelection. Uh, if we basically got money out of politics, this is not a very conservative position, but I actually, uh, believe in government funding, the public funding of elections, so there's no interest group money buying off politicians. The elected representatives then don't spend half their time raising money for the next election, one, because it's illegal, and two, because they can't run again, <laughs> you know. It, it, that's, that's, that is a sweeping change. That is a change in the uh, basic rhythm and structure of how our political system works. And it may sound a little radical and uh, uh, impossible, but unless we do something like that, uh, the system isn't going to change. The people who live on the banks of the Potomac 
and have a career there and never leave, they're carried out <laughs> feet first, uh, you know, as long as they're running everything, uh, we're going to have a state-dominated, state-oriented policy when actually democracy and uh, free market prosperity is about the opposite. The real, you know, history of personal liberty, free market uh, economics, and small government is that the private sector is where the action occurs and government needs to be minimized and constrained and hobbled to the greatest degree possible. You know, we're not near that today. We're in the opposite end of the field. You know, we kind of did as a society accept some pretty egregious top-down policy, you know, in 2020 and through 2021. And I mean, we essentially shut down the economy. I mean, and some parts of it, you know, I think I think I saw in your newsletter, like 56 percent of the of the um, yeah. OK, uh, the in, the, in the hospitality, hospitality and leisure sector, sector hotels and right. restaurants and bars and museums and sporting arenas and so forth. Within two months, the number of employed people dropped from 16 and a half million in February, before the whole COVID lockdown started, uh, to barely eight million in April. Two months later, when the uh, you know lockdown slammed on the economy, and especially uh, those kinds of venues where people uh, congregate socially. Now. I want to be clear, I think the whole thing was a drastic, terrible mistake. We weren't faced with the black plague type, uh, you know, uh, situation where the very existence of society was at stake or at risk. That wasn't true. This was always a bad, uh, you know, uh, uh, virus that, you know, attacked a small portion of the public that had um, compromised immune systems or comorbidities or uh, were aged. And we should have done uh, a targeted uh, uh, policy that was focused on helping nursing homes and, and we shouldn't have been shutting down gyms. Now, how stupid is that? And it, it wasn't just that this was stupid, it was unconstitutional. People who had spent their lifetime building up through sweat equity, a small business, neighborhood bar, or let's say a chain of three or four local restaurants, or you know a few uh, gyms, or that had uh, purchased a couple uh, local theaters, uh, their livelihood was wiped out when Fauci ordered them to close, and he did that. On March 16th, he got right there in the White House at this famous press conference that uh, Trump held and read what it said on the paper in small print, and that is restaurants and bars, et cetera, et cetera, are to be closed. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, a trap door opened and a large share of the economy went right into a black hole. This was terrible. And then they had the audacity to say that since we're ordering the supply side of the economy to contract, that's what you do when you close all the restaurants and bars and hotels and movie theaters and malls and everything else, and that's going to cause a recession. So let's borrow trillions and trillions of dollars and pump it back into the uh, economy 
when there's nothing to buy. Okay, well, that's, that was a recipe right then and there for this virulent inflation that emerged, you know, over the next two or three years. So the whole thing was a fiasco. And, you know, Harry Truman, who I, you know, was a president of some standing, I don't agree with a lot that he did, but he had a saying that a big plaque on his desk that said, the buck stops here. And what he meant was, I'm not going to make excuses. If some bad policy is adopted and it was in my purview uh, to sign off or I could have prevented it, uh, then the responsibility, the accountability lies with me. That's the story with Trump. The whole lockdown was, at the end of the day, a Donald J. Trump production. And rather than, you know, listen to all of the dissenting voices, that were out there in the medical community and uh, in the scientific community and among, among epidemiologists and so forth, uh, the people that eventually signed the great Barrington uh, Declaration. Rather than listen to any of them during that period, uh, he allowed the, what I call the virus patrol, uh, led by uh, Fauci and all the rest of them, ruin economically the lives of millions and millions and millions of workers and millions of uh, small uh, business people and entrepreneurs uh, changed uh, you know, the face of our economy almost overnight. I just want to mention, one of the characteristics of this time period was that there was a lot of guidance that was given by different agencies and so forth, which was then adopted as if it was rule. Mm -hmm. Right, whether it was hospitals, whether it was doctors, whether it was governors making decisions based on Fauci's you know, edicts and so forth. It's like all of society accepted and didn't come out with uh, pitchforks and torches, so to speak, and didn't um, you know, respond. Well, because the, the system was so unbalanced. In other words, there's a whole bunch of people out there that think Donald Trump walks on water. Donald Trump was there every night with the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force uh, basically endorsing or repeating what they were saying. So his constituency, at least for a while, said, uh, I guess we have to do this. It must be the Black Plague. We're all going to die. The government has to engage in, you know, extraordinary, extraordinarily uh, 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 interventionist uh, activities. And then, of course, on the other side of the political equation, they could see this was going to disrupt the economy. This was going to help them find some way to, because they were way behind in the 2020 election. So this was just part of the uh, Trump derangement syndrome on the left side of the political equation and in all of the uh, mainstream media. Uh, you know, they jumped on this thing like, uh, you know, with eyes uh, wide shut. No one asked any questions. Uh, any dissenting voices got drowned out. We know about all the censorship, the uh, cancellations, all the terrible things that were being done in the social media at the, uh, either on their own uh, motion or at the, at the instruction of federal agencies. All of this happened. And so, therefore, the people out there uh, didn't hear very much of the true facts of the matter uh, of the alternative, at least for a while. But eventually, it did creep through. Some people started to raise their hand and say, this isn't right. 
and I give Senator Rand Paul a lot of credit. He was the first one that was willing to sit there in a Senate committee hearing and take, uh, you know, the battle right to uh, Fauci uh, and call him a liar and call him a fraud to his face, which is, both of which are true. Uh, but we need now to re rewrite the true history, uh, which was this was a catastrophe beyond uh, uh, imagination that no one could have predicted five or six or eight years ago, and we can't allow it to be repeated uh, ever again. I think a lot of people were, let's say, fooled, right, mm -hmm. and, or didn't realize you know, how far things had gone in the wrong direction. But here we are. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things that you talk about, and indeed is a, an important part of your book that I so enjoyed reading and I want to recommend to everyone while I have the moment, is you know, how individual people, Main Street, can actually deal with this you know, financial bubble that seems to keep growing, as mm -hmm. we've discussed today. Well, I, I would say two things. First, people need to start with a recognition that we're in a totally new ballgame. This party of decade after decade of easy money and rapidly rising stock prices and bubble wealth and so forth is over. And therefore, you need a new game plan. Whatever worked in the last four years or the last 12 years or the last 30 years is not going to work going forward because the central banks have reached the point where even they have had to shut down their printing press. And all of this ultimately was a result of printing press money uh, flooding into the system. That's the first point. The second point is people know, but sometimes don't think about, what really matters is your net worth, your wealth. That's the, uh, you know, that's the uh, financial security you have for the future and for a rainy day. But uh, net worth or wealth is a function of liabilities on one side and assets on the other. And the difference, of course, is uh, your uh, wealth, your net worth. Over the last 30 years, the way to build net worth was to uh, buy more and more assets and borrow money if you had to in order uh, to purchase them or margin them because assets were rising rapidly in value and the cost of debt, the cost of liabilities, was being pushed lower and lower to practically nothing by the Fed. So that was the game plan. Accumulate assets, gather assets. If you have to borrow money to do it, so be it, because the you know, assets will grow faster than the cost of the debt will increase. We're in the opposite ballgame now asset values are going to fall over time. And the cost of carrying debt or liabilities is going to increase and stay high. So the, the strategy today is to work on the liability side and reduce it rather than on the asset side and increase it. And that's hard to do. If you have debt, it's hard to reduce the debt. But if you've made a killing on uh, you know, tech stocks, you can liquidate them and pay off debt, including home mortgages for that matter. Um, and you can spend less and save more. Uh, it's not a pleasant thing necessarily to do, but the point is 
the new strategy is to work on liability reduction rather than asset accumulation. Basically, the financial markets are now a dangerous place. Stocks are way overvalued on average. There are still some gems you can find, but you know most people don't have time or the capacity to do that. Bonds are way overvalued because the yields are still way too low, which means that the price is too high. Real estate, particularly commercial real estate, is way overvalued because it was all inflated by debt-funded speculation in the real estate markets. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the nature of where things stand today. Overvalued bonds, overvalued stock, overvalued real estate, and way too much debt. In fact, if you look at our whole economy, there's 93 trillion of debt on households, businesses, and governments combined. And that number compares, even when I went into the uh, White House and the Reagan administration, uh, the number was five trillion. It's now 94 trillion. That's how much debt has built up in our economy at all levels and is a kind of measure of uh, how out of kilter and out of balance the system is and why you know, even personal financial management strategies need to change to recognize it's a totally new ballgame. So bottom line is, you know, in a situation where, you know, you're still, inflation is still more than your yield that you're getting in a savings account, right. where, do you, where do you park your money? Just really so. Uh, well, I, I think, it, you know, inflation will be slowly coming down and the yields right now on treasuries, uh, even short-term treasuries, are in the 4 or 5% range. Now, that may not be satisfactory if inflation still feels like 7 or 8%, but I think it's a lot better to be in the 5% yield than to be chasing tech stocks that are going to have a big comeuppance or uh, some, you know, some of the other high flyers in the stock market. In fact, the, if, even if you're buying the S&P 500, um, you know, through an ETF, the whole thing is way overvalued. And it's better to preserve capital with a modest yield than to swing for the fences in the high-risk asset markets and lose a lot of capital when, you know, this day of reckoning uh, fully resolves itself. Well, David Stockman, any final thought? Uh, well, uh, I, I think uh, there's a lot to think about because uh, the world has unfolded in a way that uh, we couldn't have predicted uh, two decades ago or certainly three or four. But, uh, you know, all is not lost. <laughs> there's a lot of good things going on in our economy today. But we need better governance. We need to recognize that we can't borrow and print our way to prosperity. We need to invent, work, save, invest our way to prosperity. And if we could get back to those fundamentals, uh, things can get a lot better. Well, David Stockman, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Great to be with you. And uh, there's a lot more to talk about on a future occasion. Love, love hearing that. We'll do it. Sure. Thank you all for joining David Stockman and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick. <music>